The goal of most sales books, sales training programs, sales organizations is to get more sales. The goal of trust-based selling is to help the customer. The paradox is that if you abandon attachment to the sale as the goal and instead view the sale as a fortunate byproduct, you'll actually do better. Welcome to Rise Leaders Radio. I'm your host, Leanne Mallory. As a leadership coach, I work inside organizations and I focus on helping leaders achieve their whole person potential and meaningfully contribute to their organization's mission. With this podcast, I share leadership best practices, developmental approaches, and stories of exemplary leaders. Well, hello and welcome to Rice Leaders Radio and episode 36. My guest today is Charlie Green, who has been writing about trust for well over 20 years now. He's particularly focused on trust as it pertains to business and even more narrowly focused in the building of trusting relationships in the sales domain. So not often a relationship that we think of that is um, embedded with a lot of trust, but he really does cast a different light on it and invites us into a different perspective of building relationships in the sales process. In this interview, we talk about a definition of trust. We do walk through the trust equation, which I also did in episode 17. I did a short solo episode on the trust equation and developed a guide. So you might want to also download that and have that handy as uh, Charlie and I are are walking through that equation. And he also talks about trends and patterns that he has seen over the past 20 years, as well as what has and has not changed. I hope you enjoy the interview and really do appreciate any comments and likes, ratings that you can provide through your podcasting platform. Thanks and enjoy the episode. My guest today is Charles or Charlie Green. He founded Trusted Advisor Associates in 1997 and literally wrote the book on becoming a trusted advisor. He's authored or co-authored four books on trust The Trusted Advisor, which now is in its second 20th anniversary edition, Trust-Based Selling, and the Trusted Advisor Field Book. Charlie's got an MBA from Harvard and an undergraduate degree in philosophy from Columbia, which is probably why I connect with him and the nuances of the trust equation. And in his own words, he specializes in commercial relationships where people in one organization get paid to persuade other people within or outside their own organization. That includes sales, and it includes advice giving, both internal and external. So Charlie, I have been a big fan of your work for 10 or 15 years now, and it is such the pleasure to have you as a guest today on the podcast. I'm honored and glad to be here. Thank you. Yeah. So uh, I didn't know that you had a new 20th anniversary edition of the Trusted Advisor. 
And so I, I think I'd like to start with what are some of the big changes that you've seen in trust in uh, particularly in the in the domain in which you're the expert, which is relationship building, as you said, the commercial relationships, and even including in that how you define trust, because it's it's defined in a lot of different ways. So maybe we can tackle both of those right here in the beginning. Sure. Good. Well, I think the headline around what's changed is not much. We were approached by Simon & Schuster, the publisher, or, or maybe we approached them, I forget, but we agreed, yeah, there's been enough sales and it's been enough time that it's worthwhile doing a 20th anniversary edition. The publisher suggested the obvious change is technology, digital, the internet, et cetera. And we started out by thinking, yeah, that's right. And the more we dug into it, the more we came to the conclusion, eh, not so much. The fundamentals of interpersonal trust, which is what we're writing about, have not changed all that much. You know, humans have been around for millennia and the past 20 years is a blip. And um, <laughs> the obvious things, you know, the obvious changes from technology, Zoom calls, all that kind of thing, they are obvious, but they're not as fundamental at, at first glance as what has remained the same, which is people connecting with people. And, you know, you could probably say the same thing of love and friendship and, you know, other basic fundamental human dynamics. So we ended up, you know, putting a lot of small changes in most of the chapters, but that we did not end up saying, here's what's different. So that's, that's kind of my take on, on that. Yeah, it, it strikes me that, you know, human biology has not changed. Right. And the emotional state, et cetera. So it makes sense that the dynamics of trust haven't changed, even though technology has. And, and I actually take some comfort in that, you know, that it's, <laughs> <do> you, know, <laughs> you know, that it's uh, the basics are still the same, no matter how much technology that that we throw at it. Right. I totally agree. Yeah. So uh, just to clarify, so you say Zoom. But there's also all these tech platforms. So there's like sales tracking platforms, whether you have Salesforce or HubSpot or those kinds of things. You also have networking, particularly LinkedIn in the professional domain. Yeah. And so what you're saying then is that that technology hasn't really changed the basic dynamics of trust. Well, that's an interesting case. That's one area where there, I think there has been you know, a fair amount of shift, and it's mostly been negative in, in, in the following way. The digitization of sales and marketing, I think, has produced two things and missed on a third. Uh, the one thing it's done, one, one of two things, is to make um, minimal the marginal cost of adding another potential customer, another name in the mailing list, et cetera. And it's made it hugely easy to target and segment and refine your audience. And I think all the platforms you mentioned and all the, the you know tech marketing have honed in on that. Wow, we can refine our target customer. All right, fine. What they have not done is to use that same wealth of information, especially LinkedIn, great example, to do anything to modify the content. It's as if they have you know narrowed down to micro audiences and thrown them the equivalent of a billboard. <laughs> <laughs> or, or a sense-off promotion in the grocery aisle for Campbell's Soup. I mean, you probably get same as I do once a week, not once a day. Right. Some kind of, you know, maybe it's targeted, maybe not, but it's a completely impersonal email. It's really no different than spam. 
And yet, if you look at LinkedIn, how hard would it be for somebody to take two minutes and craft a comment that says, gee, I see you wrote three or four books. I'm particularly interested in that one. What's your view on this issue? Or, hey, I noticed, you know, that snowstorm in Minneapolis last night was really messy. Did you get caught up in that? That's customization. You know, that makes you sit up and notice. But instead, all this technologies, I mean, I got an email this morning, second time, you know, they don't pay attention when you react negatively. You know, have you practiced customizing the first line of your email to make it? Oh, my gosh. You know, it's the personal, <laughs> the mechanization of personalization yeah. is a prediction. And it's not hard to sniff out and it's not hard to do it right. But people are not doing it. So that's one area where there's enormous potential that hasn't been tapped. In fact, it's gone the other way, I think, to the detriment of, of um, you know, digital sales and marketing. Well, I appreciate that you did a couple of things for, for me and the listeners here, which is talked about what is working. What's the great thing about LinkedIn? Because it is wonderful package. It, it is. And particularly if we look at, you know, in the 20 years since uh, you and your co-authors wrote that first book, there are a lot of people that are out in the world like me that are solopreneurs or we're individuals, yourself as well. And it would be a lot more difficult to build our business if we didn't have a platform like LinkedIn. Yeah. So it's, it's made it so much easier. Yeah. So, you know, the, the two areas where you just mentioned are great. And like you said, I daily, maybe two or three times a day, I get some really, I would say fairly flippant invitation to connect from someone. Right. And it's like, how about we set up a phone call? No, excuse me. No, we're not <laughs> right. there yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but what you're saying is that we could still use that same mode, but yeah. put a little bit more thought into it and it could be really useful. I All think right. people get seduced by saying, oh, I can hit, you know, 10,000 people. Why don't you try 200 and do a better job of it? Mm -hmm. So let's back up now a little bit and talk about um, how, how you define trust. And I want to set some context here that I really appreciate the model, the trust equation. I know that there's even more to it, but you've got the elements. And even within those elements, there's so much nuance. And so it can be, in my view, it can be used internally for trust building on teams. Uh, the original focus was building external relationships, I believe, in, in that trusted advisor space, as you were talking about. But each one of those elements goes really deep. I mean, you could spend half a day or a day or longer on each one of the elements, which we'll go over later. Yeah. Uh, but do you have a general definition of trust in this commercial environment that you use? Yeah. Let me make it a two-level definition. Level okay. one is I find, and it's interesting you raise this question. I think it's exactly right because trust, as it turns out, we all have very strongly shared precise views, but we don't have a language for speaking about it. And you end up with a lot of confusion. So my contribution to that debate is to say, look, when two people come to trust each other, uh, there's an interaction and one party plays the role of trustor, which means take a risk to trust the other person. And the other party plays the role of trustee, which is basically, am I or am I not trustworthy? So when a risk um, okay trustor meets a trustee who turns out to be trustworthy, then boom, the level of trust goes up between those two parties. Now, a lot of stuff that's out there just measures the end result trust. 
And it begs the question, what's going wrong, the trustworthiness or the propensity to trust? So by incorporating those two different roles in one definition, I like to think it's a more practical way to think about trust. You know, we have to be able to do both. We don't trust people who, and they may be super trustworthy, but if they never take a risk on us, we become suspicious. So people operating in a trusted advisor space or internal, it is the same thing. We need to be adept not only at being trustworthy, but also occasionally taking risks to further the development of that relationship. So that's level one. Level two then is obviously you break it down towards what the dynamics of trusting and what are the dynamics of being trustworthy. Now the trust equation that you mentioned probably should have been called the trustworthiness equation because that's what it's about. And it's got four components, uh, you know, credibility plus reliability plus intimacy divided by self-orientation. There's a wealth we can go into on that. I'll leave, leave that to you. But that's, that's basically a simple, clean way of defining fairly, you know, people would agree on. The best academic article uses three variables and it's much the same. So there's, there's my two-level definition of how to think about trust. Yeah, thank you. And I, what I really appreciate that too is that when I start feeling a lack of trust one way or the other as the trustor or the trustee, this gives me a place to start looking. Which exactly. element seems seems to be missing here? What's off? So it's it's a bit of a diagnostic tool for me that's also super, super easy. You know, I don't have to take a really long assessment. Um, so be- before we go further though, what is a trusted advisor? I, I wanna define trusted advisor and how that's different from just like having expertise or something like that. So, because I think that trusted advisor is what we want to get to is like the pinnacle. Yeah. What is it? Uh, That's a good question. I actually, it's a little harder for me to answer that. Clearly it's somebody who has some expertise, somebody who probably has a track record with you, you know, good enough for your, your purposes as a, as a, the trustee. And it's someone who I would say, um, has your best interests at heart. And uh, another way to put it, my co-author on the, on the Trusted Advisor Field Book, a safe haven for tough issues. Mm. Someone you can talk to and know that they will, A, keep it confidential if that's the right thing to do, will give you unbiased advice, you know, even if it's difficult advice to hear, you can depend on them telling you the truth. And you have some trust in their motives they don't mean you ill. Uh, and, and, and again, they, they kind of have your best interests at heart. That's a little bit swampier than I'd like. <laughs> well, I, I appreciate that. And the fact that it's called a, a safe haven. And as I was listening to you, it also even, I would go as far as to say, feels like a sacred space. It's, it's, it's a, a space that you want to protect. Yeah. And not typically what we think about in the, you know, the traditional kind of extractive definition of sales. Yeah. And so it, it seems like at one end of the continuum, you might have that very transactional and even on the negative end, extractive. Yeah. And then the far end of the continuum would be the trusted advisor which is, it seems like something that develops over time and that there's a strong emotional component to that. So maybe it doesn't take time. 
Uh, no, actually, there are several myths about trust, and, and um, I'm glad you raised that. That's one of them. Trust takes time, or is correlate, you know, trust takes a, a long time to build and a moment to destroy. Time is not the issue. Um, courage is the issue. It's the ability to react appropriately to the other person in the moment. Sometimes what's required is a pure expertise response or, or purely mechanical. Sometimes all we want is a transaction. If I'm buying a candy bar at a 7-Eleven store, I do not want to know the clerk's life story. I'm just not interested. <laughs> and you don't want him asking about our life story either. We just, let's just, here's my money for the candy bar. Right. All right. Exactly. Good and, point. <laughs> you know, more and more uh, the commercial transactions fall into that space. And it's a good thing. I mean, we, we went from tellers at a bank to ATM machines, and now we get bored at ATM machines because we prefer to, you know, have it done from the cell phone. That's great. You know, that's not the realm of, of, of trust, but where, where trust is appropriate is, you know, large ticket items where there's a lot at stake, where there's a great deal of expertise and you're dependent upon the seller in that area, these ideas of trusted advisor really do become relevant. Yeah, and I'm thinking about, so you said um, courage, which is not typically something that I, I would have thought of right off the bat when you think of trust, but also the component of feedback or the element of feedback or, or telling a hard truth. So you may have a customer or a client that you've been working with for a long time, and it may take courage to decline an invitation to an RFP yep. or they may think that they need or they want some solution right. that would be expensive with lots of bells and whistles, but you don't actually think that that's best for them. And so being really truthful about what's best for that person sitting across from you yeah. takes courage. And I would not have put that together, but I like that a lot. There it is. Yeah. And, you know, to tangentially, the point you just mentioned, uh, David Maester, one of my co-authors on The Trusted Advisor, had this great saying, had many of them, but one of them was this, the problem is never what the client said it was in the first meeting. And that's not the fault of the client. They're, you know, they are trying to do their best job of defining what the problem is. They've got all their own unconscious biases and good on them for reaching out to find out something. But the magic that happens between seller and buyer, if it's done right, results in a higher level, more complex, more accurate, shared problem definition. And that's a very valuable part of the consultative relationship, you know, coming to a shared definition of what really is the problem here. Right. And taking the time to get to that versus just responding to yeah. the initial request or the, the initial description of the way that it's understood right now of, of the problem. Right. Yeah. Why don't we take a moment now and review the trustworthiness equation. I'll just go ahead and up upgrade to your, your term because I, I think that's at the heart of this for me is what yeah. those elements are and, and going deep there. So let's, let's talk about that. Sure. Let's do again, three factors in the numerator, one in the denominator, credibility plus reliability plus intimacy divided by self-orientation. We borrowed that notion of the trust equation from an earlier definition, um, originally, as far as I could track it back, developed by a, a consulting firm in Boston named Synectix back in the 70s. And we modified it in a couple of ways. So anyway, credibility is basically expertise, credentials. You know, Do I recognize the name of the school that you have that diploma from hanging on your wall? 
is there good data? Is there good hypothesis? Are there spelling errors? Is that a current version of PowerPoint? Stuff like that, enough mm -hmm. to make us say, yeah, I, I trust this person's you know, analysis or view of things pretty much. They sound like experts. And if you ask people what's trustworthiness unprompted, that's probably the first one they come up with. The second one, reliability. This is actually the one area where that trust myth is true. Tr trust takes time. Reliability does take time because you have to demonstrate repeated instances over time of proving dependability. So that's, you know, it's a, a pattern of actions matching up with our promises. It's worth mentioning here that the old phrase under promise and over deliver, I would say that that amounts to a lie. You are intentionally, consciously misleading the customer or the client by under promising and then doing it again by over delivering. Do it two or three times in a row, they get wise to you and they start not to believe you anymore nor should they. So you're better off doing exactly what you said. And by the way, reliability is probably the easiest way to improve trust quickly. Make a lot of promises and proceed to keep them. That's not hard to do. You know, Charlie, and in my experience, reliability is one that it's very easy to identify and that it's, it's the one in my experience that gets broken the most. And it shows up in ways like not returning emails not following through on what you said you would do. So it's that, you know, making promises and not taking them seriously. Yeah. Even the small ones over and over again, when that part is broken. It, and you're right. Underscore this. It doesn't have to be big ones. You know, you get credit or you get blame for doing it right on the small things. We, we conclude this person's undependable. Yeah. Or not. Yeah. Well, you won't take it to the next step, which is That's that. Right. That intimacy, which is, I think, the, the next element there. Yeah, the next element, intimacy, that's the one that everybody raises their eyebrows at, you know, it's <laughs> right. term in, the, in the business context. Basically, it means security. Am I safe having a conversation about topic X with this person? First of all, will they know whether to laugh or not? That's pretty important, right? And assuming they get that right, will they know <laughs> whether to pass this along to somebody else or not? And if they do pass it along to somebody else, will they treat me appropriately? Will they honor my confidences? Will they represent me accurately? You know, do I feel safe in, sure. you know, having this, sharing this information in their hands? I think that's the, the, the broadest definition of it. I want to stop here on this intimacy piece too. I'm recalling now that I've even broken intimacy down into two different levels, which is, Am I willing to be vulnerable yes. with someone? And am I willing to be empathetic? Beautiful. I, so, those are big yeah. Venn diagram overlaps on both of those with intimacy. Yes, empathetic and, and, and vulnerable. Vulnerability, by the way, also goes to the trusting side of things, being the trustor. If you're not willing to be vulnerable, that's just another way of saying you're not willing to take a risk. I don't take a risk. Guess what? Why should the other person? They won't either. Trust is nowhere. Yeah. So that makes sense now that this is the trust, trustor and trustee. Those are kind of the elements for each, each one of those. You're right, though. When we say intimacy in a business setting, I do often get the eyebrows raised like, what? Intimacy at work? You know what? I get I get a phone call about every year from one of the major, you know, Big Four or Accenture or, or McKinsey, BCG or something. And they say, you know, can we use a different word? 
And I've learned to say, no, <laughs> we want it to be challenging. I know where that's coming from. It's coming from the lawyers in the organization who don't want to be seen as having any evidence lying around that in case they get sued by some professional that had an inappropriate relationship with a client, they want to be able to say, we didn't encourage that. We didn't do anything by it. And my, my answer to them is tell the lawyers you're trying to build an organization of adults who are responsible and whose job it is to recognize what's appropriate and inappropriate. And you don't do that by going to the checkbox list of compliance and what's appropriate behavior. So no, tell them to grapple with the difficult issues of intimacy. And by all means, don't dumb it down by you know getting some simpler word like friendliness or something. Thank you for holding that line. I really, uh, no, I, I appreciate that. And in your term grappling and to be, let's be mature adults about this. I do think that appropriate intimacy mm-hmm. is really important in relationships of all kinds or where we're robots. Yes. And, and notice intimacy, this is also true of self-orientation when we get there. Um, those kinds of skills, let me just call them broadly emotional skills for lack of a better term. And unlike the credible, reliable thing, they are not susceptible to the modern tools of management, which are basically metrics and behavioralization because you can picture metrics and behaviors and you can teach them like competency models when it comes to the first two. But when it comes to intimacy, for example, if you say it right, wow is a full sentence. If you say it with full empathy in context, wow, with your eyes open, leaning into the person. And you could just easily say, wow, what'd you do then? And it's nothing. And the magic is not in the words and and you can't Mm. describe the behavior because it involves raised (laughs) eyebrows and tone of voice and subtleties like that, but it's no less real. And it means we have to teach those things and manage those things differently by examples, by stories, by metaphors, you know, by insights, that kind of thing. It's a different, mm-hmm. qualitatively different kind of a, a skill. Yeah. Again, thank thank you for holding that line. Another reason why I love this uh, the, why I love this model is that it doesn't shy away. Yes. From what's really important in the relational domain, because we're wet, messy humans. Exactly. So everything's not going to be data and science and objective. It's going to be messy. And the, the more that we're able to like step into that, the better, better off we're going to be. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. Thank you for stating it that way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. So we've got reliability. Credibility, reliability, intimacy. Intimacy on the numerator. Numerator, correct. And then in the denominator, what we call self-orientation, which basically is who are you focusing on? Who are you paying attention to? Yourself or the other person, basically. Self-orientation comes in two forms, high self-orientation, which is bad. You know, high is a bad thing, low is a good thing. One of them, the obvious one is selfishness. And if you run across somebody who's obviously overtly selfish, we shy away from them. We immediately don't trust them. Well, in the levels of business that you and I deal with, that's not that common. I mean, people don't break through. There is the occasional Bernie Madoff, yes, but they're not that hard to spot. The more endemic one that I find relevant is not selfishness. It is neurotic (laughs) self-obsession. It's that hamster wheel in the head that keeps going and things like, you know, are they paying attention to me? Does she like me? Will I get the sale? How come everybody's looking at me? How come nobody's looking at me? All of which is about ourselves, which precludes us from reaching out and having some kind of authentic connection to the person standing in front of us. It's as simple as paying attention. 
We've all had conversations with people who are checked out in their own internal zone and you can feel it. You know, you, you, you can feel they're not paying attention to me. They don't care what my answer is to this. They're off on their own checklist. And, and you know, and we don't, we, we don't trust those people. On the other hand, if somebody does us the grace, the dignity, the honor, the respect of actually paying attention and seeming to be curious, we are drawn to those people and we, and we reciprocate, you know, and we listen to what they have to say. It's kind of a matter of respect in a way. So self-orientation is all about, you know, are you respecting the other person by paying attention to them? When we first wrote that model, um, I didn't conceive of it in quite the literal equation type. We used the equation format because it was, it was cute and everybody got it. You know, we were dealing with consultants and lawyers and accountants and, and they appreciate that sort of thing. So we use, you know, one to 10 scale to maybe map out a few different scenarios. But it wasn't until about, I think it was 2009, I was walking through a supermarket one day at the checkout line and the magazine rack is there. And I forget whether it was, people or us or red book or something. And, and one of the, the headlines on the magazine said 20 questions, rate your sex life, or am I an alcoholic? I forget what it was exactly. But I thought, Ooh, 20 questions. Am I a trusted advisor? And I went home and pulled out five questions, you know, for each of the four variables, there was something nice about 20. I thought uh-huh. I threw it up online and, and waited for people to come and take this self-assessment and, you know, fast forward over 200,000 people have taken it now. And we actually generated some pretty interesting data about the behavior of trustworthiness. And so these, um, those 20 questions, are those all self-assessment or is there a 360 assessment that goes, goes with that? Yes and yes. And there is, there is a 360 version. And, and the, the reason we say um, don't use it as a hiring tool, don't use it as, as an evaluation tool because the, 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 the quote right answers are fairly obvious. So we tell people, you can lie, but you're only lying to yourself. Nobody else is going to see it. Unless, of course, you do the 360 version, in which case you do get an objective you know, evaluation of it. Yeah, I, I was actually doing that assessment online the other day. Oh, cool. Like you said, there's the answer that I want. Right. <laughs> but, Charlie, there are so many great resources on your website from the videos, to the self-assessment, to the articles. There's just a lot of good stuff out there. And I'm going to link to all of that because it's just so good. Thank you. Um, Yeah, you're welcome. But when I was doing that self-assessment, I and I would really challenge anyone who logs on and does the assessment is to really think about your most challenging relationship or the place where you get that kind of feeling in your gut that maybe you aren't showing up your best. Right. And really fill out the assessment that way. I think that's good advice. I mean, it's gonna be more useful to you the tougher the case you apply to it in your mind. And so I did get, you know, some some scores that said, oh, here's where your strengths are and here's where the opportunity is and there are some resources listed there. Did it but make intuitive sense to you? I'm- it did. Yeah, it, it, it did. And I thought the questions were really uh, very well thought out and not ambiguous at all. And they were thoughtful. So right. I really, as I went through the questions, because I know, I, I know in my heart, there are places where I'm not performing or I'm not behaving yep. the way that I hope people will describe me on my, you know, on my deathbed. And so I really did think, where are those places where I'm 
actually not showing up in the best way that I could. Oh, good for you. That's a good example of courage. I mean, being able to courageously face, as you put it, you know, on your deathbed kind of truth. Yeah, yeah. But then I might not want to share my results with a whole bunch of people. That's why we make it private. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So again, I hope that people will go online and just, uh, it, it's a great uh, self-reflection. Charlie, you've been doing this for a long time now. And I am curious about trends and patterns that you see, whether it's by industry, whether it's by gender, are there certain industries or professions where trust seems to be higher or lower or the different elements? And so I'm curious about that. Well, that's a rich one. So <laughs> ring me in on some of it. Feel free to interact and ring me in. Uh, okay. <laughs> one of the things I expected when we hit 70,000 people, we did an analysis, a broad analysis of it. Uh, we're probably due to do another one. Uh, but one of the things I expected was to see differences by industry. I expected to see low scores among investment bankers, for example. And that did not turn up. There just wasn't definitive industry data. What we did find was a wide range within every industry. And that was far bigger than any trivial differences between them. There just wasn't anything significant across industry. So that surprised me. The biggest, strongest correlation was with age that the scores went up as people get older. And um, some people have said, well, you know, it's a self-assessment. How do we know everybody's not lying to themselves? Yeah, I guess they could be, although 70,000 seems like long odds. Um, I think it makes sense. I always like to check these things against common sense. And, you know, the older we get, the more experience we get. Hopefully with that comes some wisdom. The older we get, the less we're driven by hormones and stupid stuff. And the more, you know, <laughs> and I think also think about it. Every culture has some version of respect for its elders, at least up to the point of senility. So I think that one makes some sense. Um, other key highlights, I, I would note two of them. Uh, one is that significantly women scored higher than men. And that's no surprise to the men, by the way. Uh, that's just anecdotally for me having done a lot of workshops. I asked people in the audience and like three times out of 400 people said uh, men are more trustworthy than women. So 397 times out of 400, the audience, men and women said, eh, probably women score more highly. And they do. And part of the reason for that, big reason for that is the third finding, the most important, powerful component of the four turns out to be intimacy. And that was a little bit different than what we thought when we put self-orientation in the denominator, which would mean arithmetically that it's three times. Right. Yeah, that's the first thing that came to mind is it, so we're dividing all of this by self-orientation. Well, that's right. And, you know, if, if anybody had said at the time, do you really mean it's three times the importance of the others? I would have said no, but I don't want to put, you know, 0 0.03 times S. <laughs> I didn't want to complicate it. It was really, after all, an explanatory model. But once we did the data, you take it out of that 3x weighting and you adjust it so they all have equal weighting. And it turns out intimacy by a small margin is the most powerful. That's done by doing regression analysis, which is a, you know, a form of statistical ways of estimating the relative importance. That one also, I don't like relying on statistics. So I've kind of over the years thought to find some common sense um, confirming evidence for that finding. 
and there are three that I can think of. Number one is Gallup uh, for decades has done surveys of most and least trusted professions. And reliably, if I ask people, you know, who do you think is at the bottom? They say the same three things, politicians, lawyers, and car salesmen, always at the bottom. And indeed, they're at the bottom on the Gallup list. The top one, people don't quite as easily guess, but it's nursing. And that also makes some sense if you think about it. First of all, in the U.S., nursing is an 89% female profession, so there's some overlap there. But more importantly, whether it's a male nurse or a female nurse, I've talked to a lot of them, probably the key essence of a really effective nurse is the ability to get really good at intimacy. And you think about the year we've had with COVID and and, and these images on TV of nurses being the final go-between between between dying in isolation and their families. Who steps into that breach? Nurses. And they do it admirably. So... To me, that's another, you know, the most trusted profession, I think you could say, it depends on intimacy. And there've been a couple of articles written. There's one on HBR that says, you know, what if you have to choose between competence and likability? And the research says, we all say, we will take an unlikable, uh, a competent jerk is the phrase, you know, I'll, I'll handle the jerk part. I just need competence, but that's not what they do what they do in practice is they go for the likable incompetent and they figure, well, I got some competence. I'll find a way to help shore up the competence, but I don't even want to deal with unlikable people, you know, and you can do a few other thought experiments, but basically I think that the intimacy hypothesis makes sense. That is the biggest driver of trustworthiness. Yeah. And I think too, I'm thinking right now about the, the popularity around vulnerability and, you know, Brene Brown, and that has, has really just taken off. And I've listened to several of her podcasts. And by the way, she has a great one interview with, um, oh, shoot, tech. Oh, I don't know. Yeah. Okay. But she, you know, really digs into this domain of of vulnerability. In fact, you know, that she she's a social scientist and applied mathematician. So she she got into it from a very heady place. Yes, she did. She knows whereof she speaks. Right. And and so it, it feels that, you know, what you're finding and what is in the zeitgeist today, as far as vulnerability, are confirming each other. I think so too. Kara Swisher, that's the name I was trying to Okay, remember. thank you. And so that's a, good, that's a good interview to listen to then. Yeah. Okay, all right. I, I wanna comment on something that you just said where, uh, you know, as, as Gallup has done the survey, you referenced in, in an earlier conversation that we had, and then I followed up on the Edelman Trust yes. Barometer. And the 2021 report is out. And as you said, government, and it, it, it is a research that's done, I think 11 countries are, are researched there. And so it's like the, the, the EU, North America, South Korea, uh, Japan, Saudi Arabia. So those are the, the basic countries. Right. And government across all of those countries scores the lowest in trust, which is fascinating and sad. And what was surprising to me in this latest report is that trust in business is higher. Now, not in the U.S. Right. 
It's not in the U.S. In fact, the U.S. has gone down in the past few years, trust in business and trust in, in business leaders. But I am curious about, because you referred me to the Edelman Trust Barometer, and I, you seem to really respect that organization. What What are you seeing in your work when it comes to trust and business and business leaders? Are you drawing any correlations there that that are interesting yet? Well, let me answer that in two parts. My work has focused almost entirely on interpersonal trust, not on institutional trust. And so I don't, I haven't studied it in depth. I mean, I have a few opinions about it, but that hasn't been my main focus. And I've tended to focus on, there's a great old story from um, Stephen Covey, one, Mm -hmm. one of his books. He talks about a boy and a man walking along the beach the night after a storm. And there's all these starfish that have been tossed up on the beach. And the kid is throwing them back one at a time. And the man says to the kid, you know, there's a lot of starfish here, kid. You're not making much of a difference. And the kid throws another into the ocean and said, made a difference to that one. (laughs) Right. And so I, you know, that's my kind of view. That's my place in in the vineyard to toil. Um, That said, uh, I have kind of mixed views of the Edelman PR work. Uh, They've been doing that study for about 22 years. They are the largest privately held public relations firm in the world, and they're good. And that study comes out, it's time to come out. And they introduce the new edition every year at the advent of the Davos conference in Switzerland. It's a great product for Edelman. Now, each year there's a different headline. And sometimes government is up and business is down. And sometimes it's because, you know, we like people that we know more than, there's always a new headline. I will say though, and, and more fundamentally, they tend to be measuring trust and not focusing on that question I mentioned at the beginning. If trust is down, is that because of untrustworthy behavior on the trustees or because of untrusting behavior on the part of the trustors? And to my mind, if you can't answer that question, you don't know where to put your, put your resources. That said, it is, you know, I'm sure it's statistically valid down to the nth degree. And you mentioned earlier, um, the trend of most of those stats is down. And I'm sure they're right about uh-huh. that. You know, the, all the social trust stats have gone down over the past couple of decades. And it is worrisome. And it uh, they're not wrong about that. And yeah. uh, who, whoever's turn it is in the barrel, you know, maybe changes year by year, but you know, it, it's all not looking good. Yeah, I think the headline for 2021 was like around an infodemic is what they're talking about, the information. And I, again, this is probably why I'm so connected to your model is because it's about relationship which is at the very basic domain or very basic element and something I can do something about. I can't do anything about what's going on in government or whatever, but I can do something about how I'm showing up and the relationships that I'm building. So I, you know, there's something I have direct impact on that. Even as I thought about this current headline though with Edelman and the infodemic, I think term, even, yeah, it is. I think there is something that I can do there. It's like, am, um, how am I spreading information? How am I confirming information, you know, or validating what I'm reading? Or am I just spreading things that confirm my biases? And so in, in that one, I thought, actually, there is something that I feel like that I can do with that one in terms of how I relate to the information and then what I do with it. 
Yeah, great point. I mean, that goes partly to credibility. Are you purveying truthful stuff? Are you being an honest judge, assessor of what information is coming in so that you're passing out only quality? That's, that's a great point you make. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. So, Charlie, what else has your attention these days? We've, we've covered a lot of things. The main thing that I wanted to talk about today was the, the, the trust equation and your definition of trust and, and you know, some of your findings. And I also love what we talked about right at the very beginning was even with all of this technology, yeah. trust is trust. Yeah. What else has got your attention these days or are you passionate about that we want to cover before we end, end our conversation today? Right. Well, we'll try and keep it short, but I, I think uh, over the past decade and a half, I mean, I've always kind of been interested in the application of trust to sales and selling because that is such a toxic combination for most of us in the Western world. Sell is a four-letter word. We don't respect salespeople. Uh, most of us have an internalized, semi-conscious cultural bias against selling. And it's not hard to see why. I mean, it gets abused all the time and, and uh, you know, car salesmen at the bottom. And on the face of it, there's this opposition between, you know, I want to extract money from your wallet, you know, and you want to get out with the best possible deal. It's just served up to us as a zero-sum game. And I do think, and I wrote a book about this back in 05, that uh, trust, what I call trust-based selling uh, says it doesn't have to be that way. Our attitudes towards sales are so encrusted by management behaviors, by we mentioned some of the technology things before, breaking things down to small timeframes, depersonalization. Um, the difference, though, is at a fundamental level. The goal of most sales books, sales training programs, sales organizations is to get more sales. If you were to reconceive at the goal level, what is the goal of trust-based selling? It is to help the customer. And I mean, that sounds like trivial, but if you really explore the consequences, they're profound. And I would argue, and I think just on common sense, if somebody actually treats you well, meaning appear to have your best interests at heart, focus on their time frame, not yours, you know, give good advice along the way, be willing to recommend a competitor in an extreme case. If you're willing to do all those things, you'll probably get more sales. So there's another paradox at the heart. If you focus on the best uh, for the customer, you will end up making more sales than somebody who's trying to maximize sales. And it all depends, I think, on the purity of your motives and you know, a little bit on skills. So I, I just find that dynamic fascinating in the area of trust. Well, I, I do too. And again, as you're speaking, I think about myself and I've never been drawn. I mean, I, I actually know people who they're very, very drawn to sales and they always have been. It's been an exciting and they're, they're, they're beautiful people. You know, they're like you said, it's, they're beautiful people. If I reorient what I'm offering in my mind that not, not just in my mind that I truly believe that I want to do what's best for you. Right. And that if after our conversation, I don't think what I have is what you need. Then you should say so. I should say so, but it also lets me off the hook. So my own metric is not whether I make the sale. Right. My own metric is whether I've served you. Yes, exactly. And I, I'm much more willing to go into a conversation myself under those auspices rather than to make a sale. It feels much more in line with my personality. 
yeah. to say, will this work for you? And again, the, the paradox is that if you abandon attachment to the sale as the goal and instead view the sale as a fortunate byproduct, you'll actually do better. Yeah, thank you. I'm glad that we uh, that we discussed that here at the close. Charlie, thank you again so much for your your time today. And like I said earlier, I'm I'm going to put the the link to your website. Is there anything else that I should link to other than the website? And I know you've got videos and all of that. Is there something else that you've got going on that you want to talk about? I, I hope, I think the website provides its own kind of map. There's a, there's a blog on there. There's some podcasts. There's a bunch of videos. There's like 15 years of, of uh, uh, blog posts and articles. And I, I think, um, you know, I'll, I'll reflect on this later and send you something if I change my mind. But I Fantastic. think the website's good. Well, thank you again for your time. I love this model. I've been, like I said, using it, uh, using it for years. And I'm glad to see that it's it's standing the test of time. Yeah, just as you, you know, as you do your you know twentieth anniversary, yeah, that it's you know it's still solid even with all of the other changes. The basics are still there, and it's it's a very useful it's a very useful model. I I know that you understand and mean what you're saying there, and I do appreciate it greatly. Absolutely. All right, Charlie. Thank you so much. Thank you. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to Rise Leaders Radio on your preferred podcast platform. Your ratings, reviews, and shares are also really appreciated. You can also visit rise-leaders.com for all the resources we talked about today and to work with me if you're committed to making your unique and positive impact. Thank you for listening and remember, elevate your part of the world. Mm -hmm.